0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the twelfth, twenty nineteen. This is episode twenty four twenty-one of the survival podcast. And I got a great one for you today. Here's what I got on deck for the for you guys from the Expert Council Permaculture, Design, Consulting, and Education from Jeff Lawton. Creating good things instead of being mad at the bad guys. An update on Paul Wheaton's Kickstarter, which is going really well, and how you can help out and get some really cool stuff when you do. Can you overdo probiotics with Gary Collins? Gary says yes, he'll tell you what to watch out for. Best practices for WordPress site security from Nicole Awesome Sauce. Odd sounding instructions on a lawn tractor from its manufacturer with Derek Pietro. How would you prepare for an Ebola outbreak from Doc Bones? He's going to tell you what he says you should do, and I think he's answering the question. I'm going to tell you why I don't think you should worry about it. Again! Anyway, we'll get to that. Making homemade backpacking meals from Jessica Jessica Dixie Mills. And what are the advantages and limitations of Dutch buckets in aquaponic systems? From me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko. That's what we have for you today. Remember to be uh, included with your content on the show like this. And I need questions for the expert council, guys. I need them, I need them, I need them. Get over to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Check out the About page. Underneath the About tab, you will see Meet the Expert Council. You will see this amazing lineup of people that are really switched on to so many awesome things that are available. Send me, not them, your email. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. T-S-P-C in the subject line. And then say, you know, question for expert question or this is my thing in your subject line, but make sure... TSPC expert is in your subject line if it's an expert counsel question, then in the body of the email, Jack, my question is for expert counsel member, fill in the blank. We don't have a person named fill in the blank, so you know what to do, fill in the blank with the name, like let's say uh, Jessica Mills or Jeff Lawton or Stephen Harris or Sean Mills or... You know, Nicole Saucer, whatever. Then give me your question. One sentence, question, ended with a question mark, then hit return. Give me all the details you want, but condense your question down into a single sentence. I promise you it can be done. It will make it very clear what you're asking, and the expert council member will then be able to do their best job in getting the question answered for you. Let's go ahead and dig into it today. I'm going to start off with leading off with probably the 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 best permaculture expert on the planet, Jeff Lawton, talking to you today about what permaculture design is, what it's like to be a permaculture consultant, and how you begin the education path. Um, of becoming a permaculturist no matter what it is you want to do with this design science. Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia.
1: And uh, today I'd like to talk about design and that's the subject of permaculture. We're about design. Uh, Permaculture is a design science with ethics. So it's an ethical design science. And when you take a design stimulant course, you then become a trainee designer and you can use permaculture as a design system to implement practical applications for yourself or for other people. So you can be a practitioner or once you gain some experience, you could be a teacher and you can teach other people. But then you need some experience. But you can also work as a consultant helping other people understand design. And this is greatly needed. People need to know how to begin and lay out a mainframe of design. And I work as a design consultant. I'm also a teacher. I'm also a practitioner. I'm actually a farmer on 66 acres. And that's what I really love. And I also work as an aid worker. So I've kind of gained my credibility by trying to cross right across a broad spectrum of permaculture work. But I'm often asked to consult and I'm often asked by my students, how do you go about consultancy? How do you approach consultancy? Well, I go through it in a set of stages and um, it can go for uh, as long as you like, really, but uh, until a system is completely established and in maintenance but I start off with an assessment and I assess the site that I'm consulting on or the project I'm consulting on or the situation I'm consulting on because it can come in many forms and that assessment is to explain to the client what the potential is what the basic potential is and what the ultimate potential is of a site so from a basic application right through to um the the a complete um thorough design with every all potential met um as a as an assessment so then i can get an agreement from my client or my customer however you want to call them um is this is this what you want is this is this fit into what your requirements are Uh, because if you want something else let's talk about it and I'll tell you whether it fits in to what I think is truly a permaculture design and if if you want something outside of permaculture then I'm not I'm, I'm not your consultant so I clarify with this assessment this is what you want this fits in with your requirements you're okay and we can sign off on this and we can agree what level of design you require so once I have that assessment agreement then I go through, if, if required, then to a, a true design. Then I work on design and I work with the client as to, is this how you want it to go? Can you see what I'm doing? So I have a, quite a level of transparency. Now you can see the design as it evolves in stages. Before I put too much effort in and cost too much unnecessary money for my client, I, I keep asking, is this okay? I'm at this stage, you're all right with this, you wanna make any adjustments? Until I get to a final design plan and then I get agreement on that is this okay you want me to adjust it a bit do you want some changes once we have that signed off then they may that may be all they need but then it can also go on to would you like this implemented I can direct the implementation now implementation has quite a few stages so you have milestones that you really need to And and initially, they're foundation milestones. So I need agreement on each stage. So the first one would be usually survey. Um, We survey the site. You're okay with the survey. We sign off on it. Then we go through to earthworks, and we do the initial earthworks. If we're going to progress in sensible stages, earthworks needs to come quite early. Otherwise, other things are in the way. So I go through... And I look at the earthworks, Um, we design the earthworks after the survey because before anything else when we're looking at a site we prioritize usually water, access and structural positions and quite often they all involve earthworks to lay out a foundation so once we agree on the earthworks plan then we implement earthworks, everybody happy with earthworks before we finish Do you want anything else involved, if I would prefer a little bit more or changes, I will suggest them and likewise from my client. Once we sign off on Earthworks, usually the next stage is irrigation to fast track the establishment of plant systems and living systems. So then it's an irrigation plan and then an irrigation implementation. Then we can install animal systems, plant systems and now we can start to put in decent infrastructure so we can put in fences um we during earthworks we may put in infrastructure like earth banks, but uh, built infrastructure in built constructed materials we can start building buildings we can start putting in um uh house if necessary animal structures fencing all, all the different built infrastructure that can start to um evolve into a site and then we sign off on that plan and on we go and and in this as you're implementing a system will demonstrate its evolutions and and you may have to adjust to a higher potential of change that's being demonstrated by the system so you're always talking to your client about now we're seeing an evolution in this direction we didn't expect that it's good or bad but we'll adjust so that we're, we're taking um we're we're allowing the system to give us a lead and we'll evolve in that direction so we get a better design. So we keep going through implementation and then we work on establishing a system. So once implementation is finished, then we go through to fast track the establishment. And again, there may well be seasonal changes, there may well be evolutions that happen that give us some level of adjustment. And we then take that advantage that we're, we've been given an obvious change through an evolution in the site through observation, we see this, we then adjust the establishment to speed up the process. So again, establishment has stages and often they're actually, um, they're indicated by the system As it moves through to stability, once we're at establishment, we can sign off on establishment. We say we're well and truly established, everything's in position, it's all evolving. We've got to a stage of of stability. Now we go through to the final stage, which is ongoing maintenance. And this should always be set up to be reducing over time so that we end up in a minimum maintenance for a maximum potential in production and stability now those are my phases of design now i like to i like to take people on consultancies um i've hardly ever done a consultancy in the last 10 years when i haven't had students or volunteers with me but then you can't always do that it logistically you can't take people everywhere i've had people buddy me overseas and come along and carry my bags kind of thing just to see what we do what i'd like to do is i'd like to fast track that um so I'm now designing on sites for people. Um I'm running workshops. I have the potential for one in Florida coming up possibly in October, a one acre site next to an industrial factory uh, that the client owns and that need, that will go through as a permanent system um and possibly a workshop every year as it establishes. I'm also going to run a raffle if people are interested, um, for people to um pay for a raffle um, possibly something like $100 to, to uh, join a raffle um, and um, I'm going to um, pick the raffle um, on Facebook Live so everyone can see who wins the raffle and then um, hopefully if it works that'll, that'll be enough for me to fly to wherever it is in the um, United States and um, offer the consultancy to the lucky winner who'll get a consultancy for just a $100 raffle ticket. But then I will run a live, private live Facebook to everybody that's bought a ticket. So there's no absolute losers in this. Everybody gets to see a Facebook live consultancy of that event. So one person gets me there designing on site and gets the design and uh, everybody else gets to see a Facebook live of the event. So I really hope that more people will understand how permaculture design works from a consultancy point of view. And
0: hey, just in addition, uh, Jeff does have a four part permaculture masterclass that uh, is completely free. It's almost four hours of free instructional video on permaculture, and it lets you decide whether or not you'd be, you know, be uh, beneficial to take his online PDC. And I have a link to all four of those videos available for you in sh- today's show notes. Just stick with permaculture uh, for one more segment here. Paul Wheaton recently uh, contacted me about a Kickstarter he was doing. He said, "I don't know if you'll be interested in this." And when he explained it, I said, "This is probably the most important thing you've ever done." This is probably the thing that I back the most that you've ever done. He's put together a book about, he's calling it basically global solutions in your own backyard. The entire premise is that we can sit around and be upset at so-and-so here or so-and-so there. Basically, the political approach to environmentalism. These bad guys over here suck really bad, and we should do something so that they can't, they can't do this stuff anymore, all while we do the square root of F all and do nothing. And I know that's not you guys, but there's a lot of people in the world that are like that. They're on and on about what needs to be done, but they ignore completely their own backyard. There are real solutions that can be implemented by anybody in their own backyard. That's what Paul's new book and Kickstarter are all about. Here he is to tell you a little bit more about it and how you can help out.
2: Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com. I am calling to tell you about my Kickstarter because you asked me to. Um, I wrote a book, my first ever book. Uh, it's called Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. Uh, a little bit of a uh, from the summary, this book is a rich collection of things you can do at home that make a huge, positive, global difference without politics or being angry at bad guys. This book features a strong focus on adding luxury to your life instead of sacrifice. And the frosting on the cake is saving a lot of money. We all hear about the problems, and usually the solutions are to shake our fists at the bad guys. Personal solutions are often about sacrifice. Be cold in the winter, eat sawdust, volunteer for dysfunctional organizations, write to politicians, travel less, buy crap marketed as good for the environment. Uh, take cold showers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I need to point out that most of this stuff makes almost no difference. And some of those things actually make the problems worse. In this book, I put a number on those things and I show the numbers for things that really make a huge difference. Save the planet, turn the heat up in winter, take hot showers, eat delicious food, and save thousands of dollars along the way. And most of all, No anger required. Uh, Go ahead and be angry at the bad guys if you want, but I wish to show a path that will be a thousand times more effective. It turns out to be easy. A couple of quick examples. Uh, There's a lot of debate right now about uh, carbon footprint stuff, global warming, whatnot, uh, global climate change. Um, And the the funny thing is, is that I think that anybody who says it's an absolute fact is wrong. So you know that's like 99.99% of the people out there, they're all so adamant that it is this one way. It's, you know, that it's true, that it's false, whatever. But I think real scientists are going to work in the space of probabilities. So, um, the key isn't, and then all that really doesn't matter. The, the important thing is, is there are people that are very concerned. And, uh, those very concerned people, when they go to their solutions, I think that their solutions are extremely weak. They're not going to do much of anything at all. So, for example, a lot of people, uh, uh, forgetting about the light bulb people, but there's a lot of people buying electric cars right now. And while electric cars are great, and I I think we're all going to be driving electric cars soon, um, uh, I've got so much positive things to say about electric cars. The funny thing is, is that switching from your current vehicle to an electric car saves two tons of carbon per year. And our uh, annual footprint per adult is 30 tons per year. So it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, however, switching from electric heat to a rocket mass heater in Montana, that saves 29 tons. So more than 10 times more. Um, and it's the same as parking seven cars. Not just switching to electric, but parking seven cars. Jeff Lawton says all of the world's problems can be solved in a garden. In a way, this book sort of proves that to be mostly true. Nearly half of our petroleum footprint and a third of our carbon footprint is tied to food. And while we're at it, let's tie in the words of Joel Salatin when asked how poor people can afford organic food. He says, have you priced cancer lately? All right, the book is broken into five parts. The first part is the problems. We try to keep that really short because I think we all have a pretty good idea what the problems are. The second part is general strategies, so finances would be a part of that. The third part is about within the walls of your own home. So this would also include stuff for apartment dwellers. The fourth part is backyards, and the fifth part is for homesteads. And I think most of your peeps are going to be looking at uh, homestead stuff. I think we do a good job of showing how veganism is not so great for the environment unless you have your own garden. And when raising your own food, an omnivore diet is typically better. In Chapter 17, Double the Food with One Tenth the Effort, we share 13 pages of a quick overview of our philosophies in the horticultural aspect of permaculture. We do the math to show hours per year of effort and quantity of food produced. 32 chapters of a very different approach to solving global problems, generally with less effort, more coin in your pocket, and a bit more luxury. There you go, Jack. That's my Kickstarter. I I hope your peeps can uh, turn out and support it. Thanks. Bye.
0: And as you might imagine, a link to Paul's Kickstarter is in the show notes for today. Uh, full disclosure, I am an affiliate for Paul in this, so if you sign up on uh, his Kickstarter through my link, I do get a little bit of a kickback. It's not a huge amount of money, but um, if you're going to support it and you heard about it here, I would appreciate it if you'd go by the site, thesurvivalpodcast.com, look up today's episode, and use that link. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead. We've got a question now for Gary Collins, basically worrying about two things. One can you do overdue poor probiotics? Can you get too much of it and using probiotics with kids and can that be a cause of concern? Gary, take it away.
3: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the dot com. Remember to stay in touch and up to date with me. You must sign up for my newsletter, and that is www.thesimplelifenow.com forward, newsletter, forward slash newsletter or go to the website and you will see the pop-up or it will be on the right-hand side, guys. Um, got a lot of good news this year going on, so make sure to stay up to date. With too much probiotics, yeah, you can't overdo it. Um, that's the simple answer. My philosophy is if you – oh, gosh. I would not take – a probiotic in pill form if you're already eating fermented foods. The pill form is if you're not eating fermented foods or you have a specific, you know, condition that you need more probiotics, or you're on the road. So if you're eating them regularly, I don't think taking a probiotic supplement is necessary. Uh, As far as you're a kid, um, a child, you have to be careful. You're introducing some new bacteria into their digestive system into their immune system so just experiment with it it's just like anything with a young child it's give them a little bite see what happens you know you don't want to give them a full pickle and say here you go have at it give them a chunk of the pickle let him eat it, see how it goes for the next 30 minutes, and then you'll know. And then give him another bit. You don't want to just then go give him the whole piece of food or what you're giving him. Just give him little bits here and there and just see how it goes and if they can tolerate it. Um, the rash is probably a reaction. It, it's It's probably nothing serious. But obviously you don't want your kid breaking out in a rash every time you give them a fermented food because that would not be good. I hope that helps and I hope that makes sense to you guys. And again, www.thesimplelifenow.com remember I'm an MSB member so you get 10% and free shipping off your entire order. Take care.
0: Next up I uh, I know a lot of you guys are building some level of a side hustle and in I would say 99% of the instances that someone's out building a side hustle today and I guess unless you're like an Uber driver or whatever uh, the internet should be a part of it and you should own and control your own content that means that in addition to whatever you do with social media you need a website and uh, I don't say you should have a website. I say you need a website if you're going to be in business today, uh, period, because it is the primary way people find uh, people to buy product and service from, and it is the primary way that we can build our brand easily today. Your website is your hardest-working, most underpaid uh, employee that you will ever have. Uh, my website does 90% of the lifting in the business, and I make the content and put it on there, and then it aggregates all over the place because of that website. What a lot of people do not understand is that even if your little podunk uh, business is in a little podunk town, and I don't know, maybe you take people out for walks in the woods or something like that, and you got your little side about it, there are people that want to hack your website. And there are dozens and dozens of reasons that people want to hack your website. Some people just kind of get off on finding a site, getting control of it, and shutting it down. More often, they want to inject malware. Uh, and that way, everybody that visits your site potentially becomes another one of their targets. So even though you might think you're not really uh, a high-profile target, uh, you can be. And the probably the most used software to build websites today, and I really think it should be, is WordPress. But whenever something kind of becomes a de facto standard, it becomes something that gets more targeted. So we need to make sure we're keeping our site secure. Nicole Sauce has a question about that and a really detailed answer as to what you can do to keep your site secure online today.
4: Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee with a question from Matt about securing your WordPress site. He's wondering what can he do or what should he be doing to keep his website hacker free? This is a great question, Matt, because... I'd say about three weeks ago, a very timely, my newspaper website got malware installed on it. Now, Matt's got a similar problem. Um, he is unable to get ads approved at Google because they say there's malware on his site. And when he called his host, they said, well, you, you have to pay us $50 a month to deal with this. They wouldn't even scan his site for him to tell him what was wrong. Bluehost. And then so he started researching it and found the two plugins I would recommend, which are Security and WordFence. And he did his own scan and didn't find anything. So now what? Matt, get the hell off Bluehost. Why are you on Bluehost? Why? Why? How many segments have I done about hosting, guys? So you should be on WP Engine or getahostnow.com. Does that mean that they will keep you completely free of any infection? Negative. But I can tell you what they will do if something happens. And I know this because I use them and something happened. They caught it before I did. They caught it before I did. Two hours, two hours, there was an inf- an infection that came in and they were on it and they shut everything down and they reached out and said, this is going on. And they made everybody change their passwords, ran the scans, fixed the problems and then went through the last step which is getting the sites off the blacklist networks right so what host will do that for free not every host now i can tell you this they did require me to help they ran the scans and said these are the problems you need to fix these problems in you know in the case of the newspaper site I fixed some of the problems because it was basically I had a theme on there that after the latest update of WordPress needed to be deleted. And I had it as a backup theme in case my primary theme went mess, got messed up so I could roll over to, to the theme that was there. But it had a security hole in it. And so I deleted it. I didn't need it. And then there was a list of plugins that could have issues. And I looked at the plugins very carefully. And there were a couple I was no longer needing really. I had used them for, you know, like a one-time deal and I deleted those and I was done. It scanned the site, no more problems. And once that was done, they navigated all of the blast, you know, black. So like Norton will blacklist you. Google will blacklist you. Once that happens, all the other people like McAfee and whatnot, blacklist you. And then you get the red screen of death when somebody goes to your site. So it is possible, Matt, that you do not have an infection right now or anything on there or malware. And that you simply have an outdated plugin that one of those sources doesn't like. And then once you're listed on one of those sources, You're listed on all the sources, but your your question was, what what should I be doing? So I'm going to talk about this in two parts. Part one, best practices that you should do if you have your own website and you're managing it. And this is for WordPress. First one, of course, is get a good host. Make sure you have the right host. I can't stress this enough. Do not use HostGator. Do not use Bluehost. That's the same company, by the way. Go to WP Engine. They're great. Go to get a host now. They're great. They'll be there with you when there's a problem. Two, make sure that you keep everything up to date. Your version of WordPress, your PHP, your plugins, your themes, everything up to date. Three, backup. Backup off of your host. I back up once a day, full backup. I use a plugin called Updraft, and it backs it up to a Google Drive, which is free storage, which is why I do it there. You can go to Dropbox or download it to your computer. That automatic backup is the best way to save my butt, I know, because it goes in the middle of the night, and then if I wake up in the morning and there's a problem, I can roll back, and I have the one from the day before that I can roll back to as well, and here's the best part. Because I get an email confirmation of orders on Roast, for example... If I have to roll back and some of those orders are no longer there, I have an email and I can still do the order. So I'll know what that, you know, I'll know, oh, that was a payment for this. And I can send that out. So that's number three, backup. Four, make sure you're using an SSL security certificate on your site. If your host charges you for an SSL, get a different host. The SSL secures your site and you want to like have it on your whole site so that people who are there know that when they put their, their credit card information, for example, in there, it, it's secure for them to buy something. And so a lot of like, if, if you do not have that at this point, Google hates you. So just make sure you have that. Number five, use strong passwords. Have a different password for your Hosting login versus your WordPress admin login. Then number six, and this should have been first. Never, never, never store people's credit card information, social security numbers, or other pieces of information that enable identity theft on your web host. Do not store it. If you're using WooCommerce, Matt, you don't have to. You can just use... PayPal or Stripe or whatever, there's a little checkbox in settings that says store this on my server or not. And the answer is do not do it. I can't tell you how happy I was when I had the infection on my newspaper site three weeks ago to know that everybody who subscribed to my paper lost zero information. And I mean, the, the infection was not of the kind trying to grab it, to grab that kind of information, but they were safe. And they were safe be- in, in part because I made the decision not to store stuff on my own server that I am paying for, right? So don't do it. Do not, do not, do not. Okay, so that's what you can do. Oh, yeah, and then run in, uh, I guess, seven. Make sure you're using a plugin like Security and WordFence to just add that extra level of um, protection and learning how to get those settings, right? takes a little time and reading. You can either outsource that to a web person or spend the time yourself figuring it out. Okay. So part two of this is now that I've been infected, what do I do? And I'm going to tell you this from the perspective of somebody who develops websites, but doesn't like to mess with security. When infected, the first thing you do is you call your host and you say, crap, I'm infected. What do I do? And if you have a good host, they will run a, uh, an analysis of your site and then email you a summary. And then you have to fix what's in that summary. Most hosts are not going to fix the problem unless for some reason it's their fault that you're infected, right? So with that, inf- and they should not charge you for that. With that information, you can go in and fix the problem unless you're not a web developer then you might not be able to. And if you hit that point, then what you do is you outsource it to a web developer who can't. Because in my opinion, paying somebody a couple hundred bucks to fix, you know, you just give them the report and they fix it. They'll run on their own scan usually. And then you're done, right? So in my opinion, paying a couple hundred bucks for that is well worth it because then I can spend that time focusing on things like getting new customers, selling more coffee, building more websites, doing that sort of thing. I'm in a gray area because I build websites. So a lot of times when I get that report, I can fix most of what's there. Sometimes I can't. And when that happens, I totally outsource it to people who are way better at that than I am. It's worth every penny. And I know you're saying you don't have the budget from your side hustle, but you do need to have a secure site. And then two, you need to get yourself off all of the blacklists I have put together um, a list of you know links for what, what where you need to go to get off the blacklist that you can handle yourself or you could outsource that too but you know you need to get off Google's blacklist. you need to get off Norton's blacklist and there are different ways to do that like with Google you need to make sure that you you have the webmaster tools installed so that they'll actually listen to you. For Norton, it's a similar thing. They want to verify you're really the owner when you tell them it's clean before they'll scan it. So you have to put a little snippet on your site. There's some, there's some things like that you have to do. I've put a a list of those links plus a, a what to do if you get infected overview that I got from Josh over at Get a Host Now and put it all in one blog post so that Jack, you only have one link that you need to put in the show notes. Security is a big topic, guys. And you know, depending on how bad the infection on your site is, you really might have to pay somebody to fix it. And it's worth doing if it's your business website, but better, better is to avoid an infection to begin with. So those are some best practices you can do. If you're really, really, really worried about it, I would say outsource to somebody who takes care of it for you. But I understand, like, I'm in the same place. I'm not in a place where it works in my business model to pay somebody 150 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month to do that right now. And it's not that hard to keep the site up to date. But make sure you're on a good host. Have I said that enough yet? Okay, guys, go out. Make it a great week.
0: Okay, next I have a question for our mechanic, Derek Bonpietro. And this is on a really odd-sounding instruction that came with someone's new lawn tractor. I'll let Derek talk about it and I'll give you a couple of quick thoughts before we move on to the next one myself.
5: Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com coming in with another question. I've got one here that's pretty cut and dry, so let's get into it. My 2017 Toro riding lawnmower states to shut the engine off at full throttle. This goes against years of advice growing up where I was taught to idle an engine down for a bit, then shut it down. What is the logic behind shutting down at full throttle? Should I be doing this for other small engines that don't specify one way or another? Thanks, Chad. Chad, I wouldn't overthink this one. Certainly, if a manufacturer gives a recommendation, I would say follow it to a T. I mean, if they're saying that the engine needs to be shut down at full throttle, it's probably because they want the unit to have adequate airflow. This is an air-cooled engine, I'm assuming. And that excessive idling could probably heat the engine up. So a full throttle shutdown is going to be recommended probably from a cooling standpoint. You also have to remember that a lot of these newer engines, especially the larger air-cooled ones, also have emissions now on them. So they're not as straightforward as they were, say, 10, 20 years ago. So there's a good chance that this model may have a catalytic converter of some sort or any kind of air injection on it. So if the manufacturer says shut it down at wide open, shut it down at wide open. Now... As far as other small engines go, I myself would probably bring it to a mid-throttle, let it run for a minute. That way you can bring the cylinder head temp down and let the oil cool down a bit before shutting it down. So if you're not getting a recommendation, I'd probably do that myself. But if somebody's saying that you should shut the engine off at wide open, go ahead and do it. Now, this doesn't mean that you want to be out cutting your grass or using this tractor under a heavy load for a long period of time and then just immediately shut the key off. Obviously, things are going to be very hot, and the engine's not going to have a chance to really bring its temperature down before shutdown. So even though you're running it at wide open when you turn that key to the off position, probably want to let it run for a minute or two in that wide open before shutting it off. We never want to shut engines off that just worked really hard. Uh, liquid-cooled engines or anything with a turbocharger, you're typically going to give them at least one to two minutes to begin with in order to bring the temperatures down before shutting it off. Now, Chad, what I would recommend doing, obviously, when you start going into a storage season for this particular lawnmower, I'm assuming that you only cut grass with it and that it gets stored in the wintertime and you're not using it to plow, is that you would not follow this procedure to go into a storage cycle. So that would make you want to drain the fuel out of the carburetor, and even though you're not shutting it down at wide open, uh, you're, you're getting the fuel out of that carburetor and gas tank before putting it away for a for long-term use. I think we need to go into, like, a survival podcast, proper small engine shutdown protocol. We need to coin some kind of phrase for getting that fuel out of the carb, shutting the valve off, letting it sputter out before it comes to a stop, and then just putting it away for winter. Disconnect the battery. Put it on a shelf so you can charge it once in a while and get this thing buttoned up for a couple of months before it comes out for use again. we got to coin some kind of phrase for this or get an acronym. Chad, I hope that answers your question. Keep it simple on this one. Don't overthink it. Just shut the thing off as the manufacturer recommends. Focus more on following the maintenance schedules, making sure you got fresh oil in there, making sure you replace the spark plug and do valve adjustments at their proper intervals. Don't sweat the shutdown procedure. This thing will run forever if you take care of it. Go to my website, affordabledcgenerators.com. Wait 20 seconds. Put your email in there. I'll send you a newsletter to keep you up to date, and you'll get a promo for the generator kit on Amazon. If you have something with a battery, you should be charging it with an affordable DC generator. Take care, guys. Looking forward to the next one.
0: Okay, so here's what I think is going on. Uh, Most of these motors are air-cooled, these lawn tractor motors, and that means that as crazy as it sounds, if that motor is sitting there idling um, without moving, the motor actually can be hotter than if the motor's running and you're driving around. Additionally, if we go to an idle, we are slowly allowing the fuel to go into the cylinder, and as that happens, you know it's it's firing at a much slower rate. If you shut it down at full throttle, what happens is a, a significant amount of fuel goes into that cylinder compared to at idle. And since it's not burned, it's kind of dumped in there. It actually cools down the interior of the cylinder. Like Cool is relative. Cooler than it was when you shut it off. There's an instant drop in internal temperature. And what this tends to do is, is reduce backfire. That, that is what this does, and what you'll find is that this is more true when you got weather, 90, 100 degree weather outside, that when you are in uh, cooler temperatures, if you allow the motor to idle or bring it down half throttle before you shot it off, you probably won't get backfiring. So my opinion, if you're getting backfiring, this is a, a, a countermeasure to, to getting backfiring when you shut the damn thing off, if you... Um, are not getting backfiring. It's probably not necessary to do, and, but it probably won't hurt anything. It seems ridiculous because you kind of feel like this would be, like the instructions here would be when you get home with your car, right, put your car in park, stand on the accelerator, tack the motor up, and shut it off. Nobody would do that. But remember, your car is cooled with a radiator and a water pump and a thermostat that regulates the temperature of the coolant circulating throughout the water jacket on your motor. And I do not know of a lawn tractor, I know a tractor, but a little lawn tractor, like a Husqvarna, like I have or something, that has a radiator in it. So it's an air-cooled engine, and that's probably why, and it's probably to avoid backfiring. That's a guess, but I think it's a pretty good one. Uh next up I got a question for Doc Bones on yeah, Ebola. I'm gonna try, man. I'm gonna try not to go full on Stephen Harris after this one.
6: Hi, Joe Alton MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, dot net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, *The Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not in the way, now in its third edition, and the brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the layman's guide to available antibacterials in austere settings, and other books, plus the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Clinton, who writes, I know last time it seems we got lucky with Ebola not spreading more than it could have. This time appears worse to me. If a website that I've checked out is right, it is and will be worse. Do you agree or is it a non-event? Background. Right now we are living in an apartment, so a lot of stuff is tied up in storage. We live on a budget and have the means to go out and buy the things I need to take care of my family. But we're a little short on storage space. Is it time to make sure we have three months' supply of food stored up, along with all the medical supplies? I know it's always time for that, but in the move, there's a lot of stuff in storage. We didn't expect it to take so long to sell our house. One of the items in storage is your first version of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Wow, a collector's edition at this point, huh? That sure would be nice to have on hand right now. Hopefully, we can find a place quickly so that we can be in a better place to ride out some storms. Thanks again. Clinton. Clinton, I did a lot of research into Ebola during the epidemic in West Africa in 2014 when I put out my Ebola survival handbook, which actually hit the New York Times bestseller list and was one of the top 100 books in all of Amazon. I've kept an eye on the current epidemic in Congo. I feel comfortable talking about the subject. There are different strains of Ebola, and this one has taken 740 lives out of about 1,100 cases in little more than a year. So it isn't a non-event, in Congo at least, that doesn't compare so far to the more than 11,000 deaths and 28,000 cases that were identified in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea from 2014 to 2016. And it also doesn't take into account the poor reporting and the limited international response up to this point. Security issues are also hampering a full evaluation of the situation in Congo. Congo is a relatively unstable area and pretty dangerous to work in. In the next week, the World Health Organization will decide if this epidemic is a public health issue of international concern. That will ramp up the medical response and hopefully increase the survival rate of those infected. In 2014, Ebola killed the highest percentage of people early and in areas where intravenous hydration was not available. That means that some Ebola patients probably died simply from dehydration. Maybe IV fluids would have saved their lives. The website, you quote, gives some advice about what to store, but only suggests masks and gloves as personal protection gear. For a viral outbreak like Ebola, you need gowns, aprons, face shields, and more to have a reliable protective effect. Check out our pandemic kit at store.doomandbloom.net to get an idea of what you should have. You must also have planned out a sick room, either in your home or a separate hospital tent, to make sure that the sick are separated from the healthy, and this is something you should do before an outbreak occurs. You'll find a thorough discussion on establishing a sick room, either in our Survival Medicine Handbook's third edition, our current edition, or Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, although the antibiotic book, honestly, is mostly about bacteria, not viruses. It'll take some time for the Ebola epidemic in Congo to have a major impact internationally, so you've got time to get your supplies to your current location. But remember that supplies do you no good if you can't access them in times of trouble. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of the third edition of our Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net That's store.doomandbloom.net You'll be glad you did.
0: Okay, again, I'm going to try to go into my, you know, my my somewhat, you know, transcendental monk state here so that I don't flip my shit. <sighs> there is not See, I can't do it. There is not, 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 not effing not going to be an outbreak of Ebola in the United States of America. I'm sorry, I can't do it. It's not going to happen. Not significant enough for you to worry about it. Now, what Bones gave you is general, practical, good advice to deal with the potential to have an epidemic or pandemic of any kind at some point in history. Ebola doesn't work that way. When Ebola was raging in Africa, if you lived in the third-world shitholes that were ground zero on a street where your neighbor had Ebola and shit literally runs down the side of the road in an open ditch, okay, if you lived there, you had about a 1% chance of getting Ebola. And the reason is that Ebola is a very fast-moving and highly lethal infection, so it doesn't spread very good. A, a fast-spreading infection that will actually become the kind of global pandemic we, we, we fear, it needs to be something that the symptoms initially are mild, the contagion rate is high, and it takes a long time for the illness to go from, I feel a little bit like I have a flu, to I'm chucking my lungs up out of my mouth. Ebola moves very quickly, and therefore, when someone becomes infected with it, determining that they have that infection is quick and efficient, and they end up isolated. You're not going to have a sick room for Ebola because you're going to only have about a 1% survival rate. That's why it's so damn scary. You put somebody in a sick room, you might as well just watch them die. If somebody gets Ebola, they need to be going immediately, immediately, to a high-level hospital, and the only real hope they have is that they are able to uh, acquire blood from one of the rare Ebola survivors and do a blood transfusion. That's how the quote-unquote Ebola nurse survived during the last one. I don't know what this website is that the the person asking the question went to. Stop reading it. It's not going to be worse than last time. Last time, it was a whole bunch of nothing. So I guess it's going to be a little bit worse than nothing. I am so fed up with the media, and I am so fed up with the people that are supposedly our people in alternative media that latch on to all this shit and lather it up to a pile of steaming effing crap to scare somebody to sell them yet another piece of shit for their preparedness, and they're not even prepared to to, to freaking go without a job for two weeks. I'm not mad at Bones here. Bones gave you an honest answer to how you prepare for a pandemic or an epidemic. With Ebola, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so much so that if I get another question about Ebola, I'm not sending it to Bones. I'm not going to answer it. Unless something changes, if something actually changes, like it mutates into some weird strain or something, we'll talk about it. I'm telling you. This is not a concern. And if, if a year from now, three people in the United States who went to Sierra Leone or whatever have Ebola, I'm still going to tell you it's not a concern for every reason I just outlined. You are more likely to get AIDS from taking a crap on a sketchy toilet than you are to get freaking Ebola in the United States of America. If you do the math, if you get the total number of cases from the last outbreak, when it was the worst of the worst, and you compare the total number of people in these third world open sewer shitholes, to the total number of people there, you will see an infection rate of under 1% at ground zero. And it's not because it's not highly contagious, because it is highly contagious. It's because the person that gets it dies. The person that gets it becomes extremely ill, extremely quickly. And that leaves very little time for them to be a vector of transmission. It is also, while highly contagious, it is not highly contagious like, let's say, the airborne types of flu are. You actually have to get contact with the individual and, let's say, their blood or their saliva to get it. So unless somebody gets Ebola on purpose and runs around and figures out a place where people routinely are going to come into contact with like their eyes or their mouth, and snot's all over it, it's just not going to be highly infectious. And I know somebody of say, but Jack, it could mutate. And if it does, we'll talk about it. It's been around a long time. It ain't mutated. This is up there with Fukushima, go get your radiation pills, which don't even help with anything except thyroid cancer and won't do the square root of F all for you in the United States when it's over in Japan. Chill. Relax. There will be no Ebola outbreak. You can bet on it. Let's talk about something better. Jessica Mills, let's talk about making your own backpacking meals before I snap a gasket and do go full Harris.
7: Hey, y'all. Jessica Mills, a.k.a. Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land. Answer a question about backpacking. This one comes in from Jeremy, who's looking for help on making homemade backpacking meals. Details. Over the winter, my wife, the kids and I were making trips to the mountains every couple days and we would take a mountain house meal or similar just add water type dinner. And here I assume that he means he's going to actually boil the water and then add it. So just add boiling water. However, uh, even though that seems like, of course, that's what he's talking about. People do cold soak meals to save the weight of fuel and a stove. So with these freeze dried meals, if you add water and you let it sit long enough, it's going to rehydrate. But I personally like them better warm. Uh, So anyway, we got the idea to try to make our own with some success and some failure. Do you have any suggestions on making homemade just add water meals? Hey, Jeremy, the short answer is yes. I do have some input because I have also experimented with making some of my own dehydrated meals, but I'm certainly no expert. I tend to make several backpacking meals for myself and have them sent out to me in packages along the way because my treks are generally Six months or so. Uh, making that much in bulk is not something that I've made time for uh, before I go, specifically because I hate dealing with the post office hours. If you get to a town on a Friday, it's a smaller town, and they don't have any hours that they're open during the weekend, then you're either stuck there until Monday or you have to call and hope that they're nice enough to bounce your package ahead without you being present. So that's probably one of the biggest reasons I haven't delved more into it, and that is one of the benefits of doing shorter section hikes and weekend trips because you can just take everything you need with you for one trip. But uh, also, I assume that you are going to be dehydrating these meals. That's what I have done. I wish I had a freeze dryer. They're just much more expensive. But if you notice that your meals are coming out a little bit differently then the meals that you get in like a mountain house envelope or you know even those bigger cans or whatever then then that's why because the dehydrator is doing things a little bit differently than the freeze dryer but for what you're doing either will work and make you some nice meals so some of the main benefits of making your own meals is not only do you get to eat a little bit healthier on trail but with a family like you're talking about you can definitely save some money because those mountain house individual packet meals are usually about eight to ten dollars a pop. And then you get to work on a new skill and there's just something that's rewarding about taking meals that you make and enjoy them while you're roughing it in the woods. And how cool is it to share this with your family and especially your kids? So when I first started dehydrating meals for my AT hike, I was using recipes that I found online, especially ones from backpackingchef.com. He's got some real cool stuff on there. You can tell he's got a lot of experience with it. But my favorite thing that I learned to make from that website that I feel Goes really with almost any meal that you're going to make is ground beef. And I have a video on my channel that shows this recipe, or you can check it out there on his website for details. But what I learned is that a lot of people on trail call ground beef gravel because once you dehydrate it, it just doesn't seem to rehydrate well and it has the consistency of gravel. Um, But I was determined that I wanted to have some ways to get some protein and I mean pretty much anything that you make that's like a savory dish and not a dessert you could throw some ground beef in there and get some good protein on trail but the trick to this recipe is if you add in a half of cup of plain breadcrumbs to one pound of lean ground beef it just helps it rehydrate so much better so I'll send that link to Jack for that video please excuse the poor quality Uh, my channel was still pretty new at that time but the information is there and the backpacking chef has a lot of other recipes on his website. His desserts are especially good. Uh, but that might take away the healthier benefit we were talking about. Uh, you'll burn off the calories on trail though and all that extra sugar. I mean, just having a warm meal and a good dessert at the end of it is, is really priceless. But yeah, I made several of these meals with recipes to start with, um, that, you know, were specific instructions, a quarter cup of this and a half a cup of that. But I I found that over time, rather than sticking to a specific recipe, I really liked to be creative on trail because I might want different things than exactly what I had packaged before I left. I began rehydrating some of these individual ingredients in bulk, Vegetables like peppers, onions, tomatoes, mushrooms, black olives. And I would just add those to ramen noodles, pastas, rice, just anything that backpackers would generally eat on trail. I also carry things like fresh spinach, which you could dehydrate if you wanted to, and cheese sticks. And I've found that there are several things that last longer uh, not in the refrigerator than you would think. And in cooler weather, spinach and cheese sticks are definitely two of those. While I'm backpacking, I think about food a lot. So while I was walking, I would just think of ways to get creative with some of the general staples that you'll see on a backpacker's menu. And I thought, well, why don't I do something like an on-trail shepherd's pie? So take some dehydrated onions, peas, and carrots, throw it into boiling water, when it was getting close to completely rehydrated i'd then add in some mashed potatoes instant mashed potatoes run like a dollar a pack and then at the end i'd throw in an individual little cheese stick just to melt all over the rest of the food and while it wasn't necessarily as good as going to a restaurant and getting shepherd's pie it was a whole lot better than that plain packet of mashed potatoes that i would have eaten for dinner i would make enough ground beef to have it sent out to myself several times while on trail and the way that I did it was just in bulk and then I would vacuum seal either a quarter cup to a cup servings and then put those in the freezer. And when I was ready to get them on trail, somebody would pull them out of the freezer and send them to me and they were fine being mailed and then being in my pack for several days before I ate them. They never went bad or anything like that. I'm sure that if I'd stuck my nose down in that package and smelled that it was wonky, you know, I wouldn't have eaten it, but I never had any issues with that. So for what y'all are doing, if you're gonna be backpacking several times in a month, you could go ahead and, you know, make all of your ground beef for that trip, store it in those individual vacuum sealed packages, and then just pull it out of the freezer and take it with you when you go. And for those of y'all who wanna get creative with cooking on trail, but maybe you're not ready to jump off into the realm of dehydrating yet, you can always get those bigger freeze dried cans of different ingredients like ground beef or even like beef cubes um, and then the vegetables too. And then that way you can package those individually and get out on trail and get creative because I think it's definitely a good skill. And Jack always talks about how being able to cook and especially store food and get creative with food that you can store. uh, There's really no better place in my opinion to do that while out. Backpacking in the wilderness because you really do appreciate those foods, even if they're not as good as what you could cook in your kitchen at home. Uh, Another place that you can find out more information on backpacking meals and and dehydrating your own is in my homemade Wanderlust backpacking form group on Facebook. There are tons of people, about 30,000 members now, with different levels of experience. So that would definitely be a great topic to get started in there. And I'm sure if you use the search bar within that group, There are already a lot of conversations about food because people who backpack, they love food. And if Jack has anything to weigh in on some of his ideas of how to get creative with dehydrated meals, I would love to hear that also. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate the question, Jeremy. And you all be sure to check out Homemade Wanderlust on YouTube to learn more about backpacking or to follow along with some of my adventures. Thanks again, y'all. Bye.
0: Well, see, when I sent this to Dixie, I thought I would be all clever and tell you all how to make dried ground beef at home. And I can't do it because she just told you, and it is a good way to go. And she has a great video that's in the show notes you can go check out and find all about how to make it. Uh, Here's some additions to the meat side because everything else is actually pretty easy for your own meals. Uh, Do not overlook jerky. Jerky is a fantastic way to add meat to your meals. And you can make your own or you can buy it. Cutting it up into small pieces and simmering it will cause it to rehydrate to a degree. It will soften it, and it will not just add uh, protein and meat flavor uh, to your meals – Uh, it will add a ton of additional flavor because of the seasonings that are in it, so it's a flavor enhancer. This is also the place that I think we we really do need to rely on the Mountain Houses and Provided Pantries of the World, but not so much for their pre-made meals. One of the things that you can get, of course, from people like Mountain House are big old number 10 cans, and inside that number 10 can, instead of being beef stroganoff, there can be beef cubes. Now, if you get beef cubes, you get chicken cubes, uh, those are both fantastic additions to your own meals. They also have burger crumbles, which do not have the uh, breadcrumbs in them. They're just freeze-dried instead of dehydrated. Uh, they they have like a 25-year shelf life. And even when you take them out, make your own meal up, uh, vax seal them, you still have years and years of viability there uh, in those sausage crumbles they make as well. Uh, this opens up a plethora of things that we can do with sausage crumbles and some dehydrated vegetables and some egg powder we can make a pretty damn good omelet in the field so there's a lot of variants here so much so that i am probably going to be doing a show on this i haven't done it for a long time in the future so i'll cut my segment short here on this and get on into uh, answering my own question in just a bit i'll also let you know that I've reached out to O'Meals, who now does a discount program for MSB members, and they have their meals are all <clears throat> more like they have a MRE style heater in them, and they're a mainstay meal. You know, they're a, a chili or or something like that. And but with those heaters, you can do some pretty creative things. So I just I just formed a deal with them. They're going to be sending me like a couple cases of their meals, and I'm going to put together a series of videos on jack hacks. So this is not really making your own meals. This is taking a prepared meal and expanding it into something that gives you a better caloric yield when you're on the trail and tastes better and maybe feeds more people, etc cetera, uh, how, to, how to extend that. So I'll be working on that as well. Next up, i got my question today, and it's on aquaponics, or it could be hydroponics, and it's on Dutch buckets. Uh, this comes from Grady, and Grady says... Um, what are the benefits and problems with the Dutch bucket system? Would there be any advantages to having a Dutch bucket system in addition to aquaponics and traditional garden gardening? Would it make sense to just concentrate on one? Thanks, Grady. Grady, let's, let's talk about the, 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 the ending question first. Would it make sense to concentrate on just one? I think until you get uh, proficient at any method of growing food. At, until that point, it makes sense to concentrate on one, maybe two to see if, 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 if just one will work better for you in your climate. For instance, here, I do a lot with wicking beds, aquaponics, etc., because my soil sucks, uh, because there's so little soil, so I have to build it up anyway. And because really, unless I can find a fenced-in area or create one, uh, it is necessary for me to raise up my production high enough so that like my ducks don't eat it. So if I had a plain old regular garden and let's say I had great soil and I could do that here, then I would need to fence that in to keep the ducks out. So um, I kind of gravitate to that end uh, and, and gravitate toward perennial production because they're more resilient trees can grow in rock, uh, believe it or not, than then the other way. So, you may want to try a couple things because one just may be better for you uh, than another, but really focusing on one makes sense until you get what you're looking for from it or decide that you need to try something else. Now, Dutch Buckets. Uh, Grady sent this question several times, so I decided to answer it. I've been hesitant to answer it because I've never actually built a Dutch Bucket system. I understand how they work and in my redesign of my aquaponics greenhouse, there's going to be at least a couple of them uh, this time around. But that's not going to happen until the end of this summer season as we transition into fall and I rip everything out of that greenhouse and completely redo it. So um, I, I dallied and I didn't answer. We really don't have an expert council member to talk about this. So <clears throat> I decided to, I to do it anyway any way to do more research so I could speak fuller on it. And after doing like almost a half a day of research into Dutch buckets and looking at systems, uh, my uh, overall understanding and opinion has changed little. I think I know as much as there is to know about the theory that you can know before you actually build it. Like there was no new information and nothing that I previously thought had changed. So here you go. What are the problems? Let's start with the problems of Dutch bucket system. They really don't have a lot of problems. It's one of the reasons people do them. One of the problems that can happen, though, is the flow through them, either continuous or intermittent controlled by a timer, needs to not be excessive because you can only flow so much through a bucket. And the truth is you can, so let's, look, before I even say that, let's talk about what a Dutch bucket basically is. It's a bucket or a container about the size of a bucket, and you fill it with a growth medium. It can be done with something like Lika which is the little uh, balls that they use in higher-end aquaponic systems or lava rock. Uh, they've been, I've seen them built with, with vermiculite. I've seen them built with expanded shale. If it's a light material, I've seen them built with cocoa fiber. right? If, if water can flow through it, it'll work. They, and they are primarily used to grow compu, uh, cucumbers. I was going to say grow computers. Grow cucumbers and tomatoes, with tomatoes being the major crop that's grown in them. So one of the problems is if we do not get the flow right, if we go too fast, as this fast-growing, tomatoes get very aggressive root systems, and it's one of the reasons they work so well, that we can back-flood them. So it has to be a slow, controlled uh, flow. Additionally, whenever you do a slow flow in aquaponics, the slower the flow, the more restriction on a valve the more buildup of solids will occur. So if you don't have a really good solid separator system in your aquaponics or your hydroponic system, and more so with aqua than hydro, you need to routinely open and reset the valves, or what will happen is eventually they will clog, you won't have enough flow, and the plant will then die. So it's something that requires some level of maintenance Uh, which is true of aquaponics anyway, but again, the more we restrict flow, the more the potential to build up solids that do not get filtered out becomes. So you're talking about at least every couple of days you need to be cleaning out those valves. And cleaning them out is as simple as open them wide open and set them back to where they are. And every valve in my system, uh, systems I should say, what I do is I take a Sharpie marker and right on the valve I mark where that wing of that valve should be when it's set right. And that way, if I'm not even, you know, it takes seconds, right? I'm not even sure if it needs to be cleaned up. It ain't been cleaned out in a while. Open, super flow, put it back, take a look at it, you know, because the pump could have slowed down or something. But in general, that makes things easy. So that's about all the problems I can come up with. I will say that because the water's moving slower, Depending on where you set your system up, you may need to provide shade to the buckets and the return line themselves because with a slow flow, you have potential to really heat up the water that's flowing back into your system, which could be disadvantageous at certain times. Uh, And Certainly, with only a small amount of water flowing through the leka or the lava rock or whatever you're growing in, Uh, that container has the potential to become really hot, and your roots are hot on your plants, and they won't do well, so you have to think about the roots. Move over to advanced. So why does anybody do this? Well, number one, it allows you, once you build a system, to expand almost at will, okay, Um, very, very inexpensively. You get a bucket, you plumb a hole in the bottom so it can overflow into the return line, you bring a, you know, you add onto your, your, your manifold basically another distributor. You stick the bucket in there, you shove a plant in, you turn it on, it goes. Uh, next, it, most people that are doing this are looking for high production of tomatoes. Tomatoes, when you want to do high production, you want to do what's called hard pruning. That means we prune off all of our suckers and we have one central line of vine coming up. And we prune that till it's very narrow about the diameter of a 5 gallon bucket I'm just saying and it produces a lot of tomatoes for the square footage it takes up by putting each plant in a bucket we are we are almost identically matching the space the plant needs to the to to the the container the plant's going to grow in next when we grow tomatoes like this we're going to get an awful lot of suckers that we have to prune off so we can literally only start a few tomato plants, and as those suckers come up, we can go over prune the sucker off one, plug it into the next bucket, open the valve a little bit more, and run the water at a little bit higher of a flow rate until that sucker roots, and then back it down like its brothers to or sisters to to a slower flow, and and self-propagate the system over time. Uh, that's you know so what we would be pruning and throwing away, we're now making new plants with. Additionally, once we kind of get that method going, uh, tomatoes generally do sooner or later have problems with blight. So your, your your oldest tomato plants once they get blighted to the point where you're not getting the production you don't want anymore, you can yank them out and then backfill those and go through your whole season constantly redoing suckers. Um, those are many of the reasons that I personally think Dutch buckets make sense. Um, they really are for your vine crops maximizing vertical space unlike a flood and drain they also have as long as you don't run too much water and overfill them they don't really have a failure point so when we do an ebb and flow bed we stick a bell siphon in there and if the water gets a little bit too slow what can happen is that bell siphon will fail to trigger so what that means is it'll fill up like it's supposed to start siphoning. It'll be the, your, your bed will be full to the top of water. Your roots are not getting any air now, and this is bad if it goes on too long. And water keeps coming out of the discharge, but it never gets high enough volume to trigger the siphon, so it sticks at the top. As bad as that is, the other problem you can have with a bell siphon is because the water maybe for some reason gets – there was a, something going in the line, a little bit of goo got out of the line. All of a sudden, your your pump is pushing more pressure through the system, or another valve clogged. And now since it's almost like that valve was turned off, the, the valve you're on is letting more water through, and it triggers, but now the flow rate is too high – and when the water gets all the way to the bottom and it's supposed to break the siphon water's coming in fast enough to hold it there and keep it from breaking so now it's not breaking so you so now you got and if you don't catch it you could have a day or two of plants sitting maybe in a greenhouse with with only a couple millimeters of water in the bottom of the ebb and flow bed, it dries up and your plants die. With a Dutch bucket, it's a constant flow system. It's a small trickle of water through the system. In a five-gallon bucket, you want to set that flow to about five gallons an hour. Okay, so, you know, that's it's pretty simple uh, mathematics there. And you can do that real easy. What you do is you get yourself a pint jar, and you see how long it takes to fill up that pint jar and do the math. If you don't do new math, you only need a couple steps to get it done. But you can figure that out, or you can eyeball it. And once, you, once you've seen what five gallons an hour looks like, you can set all your little valves to the same thing. Um, and then you're, you're, you're kind of golden at that point, because as long as water's flowing, and it could go a little faster, it could go a little slower, it's not like you need to be out there like, Man, I'm doing 5.4 gallons, oh God, I'm going to die, or oh, I only got four and a half gallons, it's okay. And since there's, there's no siphon and it. it's just water matriculating through the system, there's no point of failure there. So, the thing about it, though, is you asked me, in addition to aquaponics, if you already have an aquaponic system, then adding Dutch buckets to it is as simple as plumbing the connections and putting them into your common return so they end up back in your sump. If you don't have an aquaponics system, then, well, you, you see what I'm saying, right? Like, okay, now you got to build a Dutch bucket system, and in essence, you're building an aquaponics system to do Dutch buckets, unless you're going to do hydro. If you're going to do hydro and you're going to use inputs instead of using your fish as your main nutrient provider, uh, then you could build a, a, a complete hydro system based on nothing but Dutch buckets. To me, though, like if I'm going to put the effort in, I'm going to put a pump in, etc., remember, once we throw that water up, upgrade... We, could, we have a chance to do something with it all the way back downgrade. So we could do something like we've got our Dutch buckets higher in the system, and then we have a, uh, a, a deep water tank with some rafting going on in it, and all the water that comes back from the Dutch buckets, because, yeah, it's only five gallons an hour per uh, bucket, but if there's ten buckets, that's 50 gallons of water an hour. That's plenty to flow back through our deep water bed, so it flows back to our deep water bed. Our deep water bed overflows back into our sump or to our fish tank. So all we're to see with aquaponics, once we figure out where we can throw that water and how high we can push that water, then all we have to do is keep dropping the system down on the return. So we can get a huge return on, let's say, a 2,000-gallon-per-hour pump from somebody like Danner that uses only 87 watts. We can be, because we that's plenty to throw that water way the hell down the end of the line, put it up fairly high, you know, so our Dutch buckets or some other system up there is catching it. You know, maybe our, our raft is up there. Then we have water coming back down. And we can actually take, instead of using force to put water into the buckets, we can use the return, set all our valves to our Dutch buckets, and then vent off any excess straight into the return line. So there's a lot of ways we can do it, you get a lot of bang for the buck. So when we get into aquaponics, we really need to realize this is a lot like, you know, I talk about the arrows and the quiver that is permaculture. You know, do we do, do, we do permaculture food forest or do we, do we do aquaponics? Well, they're both permaculture techniques, right? They both follow the ethics. They both are highly productive, and it's how we implement them. So when we look at aquaponics, a wicking bed is aquaponics if we tie it, if we tie it into an aquaponics system. A deep water bed is aquaponics. A ebb and flow bed is aquaponics. A Dutch bucket is aquaponics. A, a strawberry tower uh, tied into an aquaponic system is aquaponics. So it's just a piece in the aquaponics system. Hopefully that makes sense. And uh, we are ready to wrap up yet again. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope I didn't flip out too much on the Ebola thing. But, guys, I I, I really, like, I got to try to drive the point home. We cannot live in fear of things that are not going to happen. There's so much shit that can happen Really, like the, what what made me upset about that, and the reason I flipped on it, because I want you to get it right. The the person literally having the fear that I might not be out of my p- apartment soon enough to deal with something that isn't even going to happen, because that's when we start making bad decisions. We find a property that we really don't want, but boy, we better get there because the bowl is going to get us. The bowl is not going to get you. bowl is not going to get you. In the third world shit holes where it was ground zero, you had about a 1% chance of getting it. Yes, four people in the United States, I believe, last time ended up infected. There are over 330 million people here. You are more likely to win the lottery by walking outside Accidentally stepping on a lottery ticket, somebody threw away, having it stick to your foot. And when you peel it off, you say, I might as well scratch this thing and find that you have won $100,000. That is more likely than to you ever, ever, ever in your life, unless you are with Doctors Without Borders and go to one of these places to have to worry about Ebola in the United States. If that changed due to mutation... We'll talk about it. I promise you. With that, we have wrapped up another show. We are at the end of another week. It is a Friday, Friday, Friday. And it is time that we uh, remind you that one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is Maldon Sea Salt. Maldon Sea Salt. I love this stuff. The first time I found this, it was at a restaurant. I was like, where the hell has this been my entire life? It's just salt. It's the way that it's made, though. It's in these little, wonderful, crispy flakes. And it's not when it says, like, add a tablespoon of salt to a season. Don't put this in there. This is special salt. You keep it by itself. And it's a little salt box or a jar or something like that. And you put this on the top of food because it gives the salty crunch that you have to experience to understand. And then when I thought, like, this is the greatest thing ever invented with salt, um, I found out that Maldon also makes... <laughs> smoked Maldon salt. Yeah, smoked salt flakes. This is the bomb. Check it out. This stuff's cheap. It's about six bucks a box. Now, it's not a very big box, so it's cheap as a premium ingredient. For salt, you know, it's expensive. Use your big box of kosher salt or whatever for your daily salt needs. Use this as a finishing salt on special stuff. In my write up, I give you some ideas from that, but you gotta try the smoked version little P.S. in the article, and I'll tell you here, too. Every once in a while, stuff like this happens on Amazon. I cannot explain it. I just deal with it. You probably have seen it, but I usually point it out just to make sure people don't freak out about it. Um, a 4.4-ounce 4. 4 box of this stuff, the smoked, is like 5 bucks, 6 bucks, something like that. A 8.8-ounce 8. 8 box is like $30. Why? I don't know. Because of some stupidity in Amazon's inventory system or something like that. So if you wanted eight point ounces, you just buy two boxes. Anyway, links are in the article. Really good stuff. Check it out, and definitely try the, the. If you're like I don't know, try if you're gonna get one or the other, you know, try the smoke salt. Like this is one of those things. Like it's cheap, right? Six bucks. So like the next time you're gonna buy something on Amazon, you know, add this to your order, and it will change the way you cook a little bit, and make your adventures in the kitchen a little bit better. Uh, next up, remember, you can always support us by joining the MSB. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members to sign up. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today, as we wrap up the week, and Jackson Brown Week is going to be, I think, the only song that we put in the rotation for Jackson Brown Week that most people have heard. Um, I guess some of you younger folks that don't dig classic rock maybe have never heard this song, but this song's been used in a lot of ways in a lot of places uh, other than just on his albums, and it's Running on Empty. And this is a great song, and it kind of uh, was the epitome uh, of explaining the life on the road that people like Jackson Brown lived. Um, it was also kind of a literal statement. When we say running on empty. That means I'm like almost out of energy. I'm almost out of like mental gas, or whatever. But he, when he was working on the Pretender album. Um, he literally was running on empty all the time. He was only a few blocks from the recording studio, and he, he was always driving around with his car on empty. I guess Jackson Brown might be a lot of things, but he's not a prepper, because a prepper, you know, the gas needle goes down to three quarters and we're filling up. Uh, so, you know, that's another impetus of where some of the idea of the song came from. But I think this song is so popular because we can all relate to it. We have all had points in times where we've pushed ourselves to the limits of what we can really do. And we get to that point where we feel like, you know, we are, I'm on my last, I'm running on fumes, man, but I'm still going to complete this mission. Remember that there's a place for that, but that life is a marathon. And there's a place for taking a flipping break too. one of my laws of life is that you are a battery and batteries need care, maintenance, and recharging. So run on empty when you have to, but fuel up whenever you can with that, we've wrapped up another week. Hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't.